Now, friends, we come today to the fifth chapter, 1 Kings. If you have your Bible, you'll want to turn there. And you'll note now we're coming to the construction of the temple by Solomon. Now, I want us to note here in chapter 5, and I'll read along, beginning with verse 1. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father. For Hiram was ever a lover of David. Now, this is something to note. Whatever Hiram, king of Tyre, is going to do, it will not be because of Solomon, but because of his love and his esteem and respect for King David. Now, he sends to Solomon, and Solomon sends to him. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house under the name of the Lord his God for the wars which were about him on every side until the Lord put him under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. Now, only God, friends, can give peace, whether it be world peace or whether it be peace in the human heart. And only God can give this rest today that the human heart needs. That is why our Lord, when they rejected him as king, he could send out this personal, private, individual invitation, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, that is, burdened with sin, laden with iniquity, as Isaiah said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll rest you. Only Christ can give rest today. Now, God has given Solomon rest, given him rest on every side, that is, peace. Now, verse 5, And behold, I purpose to build a house under the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I'll set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build a house under my name. Now, you see, it all stems from David, and God would not permit David to build the temple. Now, probably we ought to go back now and get just a little background here relative to this building of the temple. Man actually has always been a builder from the very beginning. We're told even Cain, when he went out from the presence of the Lord, he built a city. And over the face of the earth are great scars, mounds that hide the ruins of great cities and splendid buildings of the past. And the spate of the archaeologist has penetrated into the depths, and you can judge that civilization by the type of the buildings. Now, they say the caveman of the Stone Age, that is, if he ever existed, he's been labeled a barbarian and uncivilized. He's not a builder. He sought refuge in a cave. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans are all counted as civilized, and it's evidence in their architecture. Now, modern man claims a high degree of culture because he's built subdivisions and shopping centers. And returning now to the 
construction of apartment buildings and tall office buildings. He's building today his own cave in which to live and work like a gopher. And the rest of the time he crawls on the freeway like a worm. And as long as he can push a button and turn a switch, he says he's living. That's modern man. Well, the very first building of impressive design were temples. All pagan peoples had temples. Some were crude. Some are the highest expression of beauty. The Parthenon is an example of it. And all stem, I think, from the Tower of Babel. The monument to man's gargantuan resistance to God. Pagan temples have been the highest architectural expression and the lowest spiritual level of pagans, uncivilized and civilized. They've been elaborate. They've been large. They've been ornate. They've been rich. They've been impressive. have been the temples of the kings on the river Nile, Asher of Nineveh, Marduk of Babylon, and the ziggurats in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Baal of the Phoenicians, Athena of the Greeks, in Athens the Parthenon, Jupiter of the Romans, the Aztecs of Mexico. All of them are a manifestation of rebellion against God. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. They became vain in their imaginations. And what did they do? Well, they built a temple. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and of birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. They made a house for their God to live in. They put God in a box like a jack-in-a-box. The temple, though, that was built in Jerusalem was never considered in Scripture as a house for God to dwell in. And friends, when we get over to Second Chronicles, we'll find that the dedication of that temple, Solomon made it very clear God did not dwell in that temple. He said then, he says, The heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, and how can this little house that we built? When you think that they felt like they were building a house for God to dwell in, you just have missed the entire point. It was an approach from man to God and an access to God by sacrifice. I want you to notice the conception of the temple, then the construction of the temple, and the character of the temple in this section here. It's rather important. It was first in the mind of David. You remember, he wanted to build God a house. That was the first thing. God would not let him build a house. But it was in the mind of David, and it was the thing he wanted to do. I'll have to go over to First Chronicles to pick this up. But will you notice in the 28th chapter, First Chronicles, verse 2 and 3, listen to this. Then David the king stood upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in mine heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for a footstool of our God. You see, all the temple was was not a dwelling place, was a footstool for God and had made ready for the building. But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build a house for my name because thou hast been a man of war 
and has shed blood. God would not let David build a temple, but it was in his heart to build God a temple. Now, the pattern was given to David, not to Solomon. We are told in verse 19 of 1 Chronicles 28, "...all this said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern." In other words, David was given the blueprint of the temple, but God did not permit him to build it at all. And he gave this pattern, actually, to Solomon, as we'll see in First Chronicles, the 28th chapter. Again, that chapter is very important to read in this connection. We're told, verse 9 of First Chronicles 28, "...and thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart." with a willing mind, and so on. Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the houses thereof and of the treasures thereof and of the upper chambers thereof. And not only that, but David is the one that gathered the material for it. I'm not going into detail. We'll get that again in First Chronicles, the 29th chapter. David gathered all the gold and the silver and all the material. He did everything but build it, you see, so that you have the conception of the temple not in the mind and heart of Solomon. He's merely executing the will of God that first was in the heart of David to do for the Lord. Now we find here in chapter 6 the preparation and now the construction of the temple. And you find that, first of all, he raised quite a levy upon the people for this. It was a tremendous enterprise. And actually, after Solomon built the temple, he went on to build other things. And he had too big a building project, and he overtaxed the people. Again, may I say that I think the evidence of decadence is today seen in the number of public buildings that are being put up. The buildings are buildings of steel today, but the men in them are weak as putty and can be pushed around. We are in a desperate day today. Now, that was the problem in Solomon's day. Tremendous buildings, but very weak men, including Solomon himself. We need to recognize that. I believe that they said in the Navy that when they got ships of steel, they had paper dolls for the leaders. Well, that's certainly been true and was true in that day. Now, you'll notice in the construction of the temple, that, as it's given to us, that actually it is only twice as large as the tabernacle was. Notice I'm reading at verse 2, the temple was much smaller than we think that it was. It was like a jewel, actually, like a diamond. A diamond is not as big as a straw stack, but lots more valuable. And that was true of the temple that Solomon built. Verse 2, "...and the house which King Solomon built for the Lord..." Now, I'm reading chapter 6, verse 2. "...the length thereof was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof twenty cubits." Now, the tabernacle was 30 by 10, and the height thereof 30 cubits. 
And this is three times higher. However, it was much taller than the tabernacle was. You can understand why. It was nothing in the world but a tent. Now we read in verse 3, "...in the porch before the temple of the house, twenty cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house. Ten cubits was the breadth thereof before the house." And for the house he made windows of narrow lights. Now, verse 7, And the house, when it was building, was built of stone made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was building. Now, let me say a word about the construction of the temple. It, as we've seen It was not nearly as large as some supposed, only twice as large as the tabernacle. It had a cedar roof. It was cedar on the inside lined with gold. It had a cypress floor carved with cherubims, actually, all around, and palm trees. It was surrounded on three sides by a three-story building. This was the place where the priests lived during their course of service. And in the front, there was a portico that was 10 by 20 by 120 cubits. It was half as long as a football field. And instead of one brazen altar, they got two brazen altars, 20 by 20 by 10. There were 10 lampstands, and there were 10 tables of showbread. You see a multiplication of every article of furniture. And there were 30,000 Israelites used in the construction. They were drafted for the work. And 150,000 Canaanites, and there were 550 overseers. Hiram, king of Tyre, furnished the materials and the artificers. And it was completed in seven years and six months. It was made of stone, as we've seen, not the sound of a hammer. And it's estimated that it probably cost about $4,900,000, right around $5 million. It was like a jewel box. And there were two pillars that were in it, and we'll say a word about them later on when we get to the chapter in which they are mentioned, and that'll be in the seventh chapter. But these pillars are very impressive, and we're going to see what they mean later on. But these are some of the details of the temple, and the reason that I mention all this is in order to say this. It was more complicated, more detailed, and the very interesting thing, the character of it, it's not only the innate quality, but that which the temple characterizes and represents. There's a prophetic meaning of the temple. And first of all, let me say you can detect definite deterioration. The temple is actually inferior to the tabernacle. Now, first of all, it's complicated. The simplicity that was in the tabernacle is lost here in the New Testament. The temple is bypassed and the tabernacle is the type. Why? Well, this thing becomes very complicated. We're living in a day when an emphasis is put on methods and not on the Word of God. Now, that's the reason in this broadcast we're putting an emphasis back on the Word of God. Friends, the church today is just filled with new methods. I had a little church when I first started out on a red clay hill down in Georgia. We had a back room. That was Sunday school. 
And we didn't have very good facilities. We had central heating, a great big old pot-bellied stove right in the middle of the church. And may I say that it was a little white church set on a bunch of rock on that side of that hill. And it was in a cotton patch. I went by it the other day. The city of Atlanta has grown all around it now. My, it has been expanded. And they have now Christian education department. And they have the latest thing. Well, I was just thinking. I asked a member of the church there that had been saved in my ministry. I said, anybody ever get saved here today? He said, no. I said, nobody's been saved. <laughs> May I say to you, we got a girl out on the mission field that was saved while I was there as a little old simple church. We never had anything complicated. It was very simple, but people got saved. May I say to you today, I don't like all the methods. I think we need to get back to the Word of God. Now, there was no windows in the tabernacle, but did you notice I read a verse that says he made windows of narrow lights? Oh, they didn't let much in, but they let a little in, you see. They did not depend on divine light anymore. They depended on the natural light outside. Now, the cherub beams are made of olive tree, ten cubits high. They're very impressive. But it's not solid gold anymore. There's more ceremony, ritual, ornate, gaudy. And this is the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The temple of Zerubbabel was put up, and it was destroyed in turn and supplanted by the temple of Herod in Christ's days. And that temple actually pointed to the Lord Jesus. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He wasn't talking about that building. He was talking about his body. He spake of the temple of his body. And you equate the temple with the body of Christ. May I say to you, this is what we have here. And I'm not reading all of this detail. I've just gone over it and lifted it out. I hope you'll read it. And I think you'll find it very interesting, actually. But it's all just building details. But there is this inferiority of getting away from that which was simple and that which had power in it and coming now to that which is complicated, that which puts an emphasis on method and ritual and that type of thing. And friends, when the church loses sight of the Word of God, they begin to put an emphasis on methods and on other things. I, very frankly today, and I know I sound like a square, we need to get back to the Word of God. That's the thing that's important today. And they were seven years in building the temple. We find out many things from this. The number of people that were involved reveal how they built in that day. Labor was cheap, of course. But in union labor, it was very cheap labor, and a great deal of it, slave labor, not here because there was no slave labor in building the temple. But there was slave labor, we know, in building the pyramid. And just think of the hundreds of thousands involved in that enterprise. That's the way they got those tremendous stones up in place, you see. And it was two things. It was the number of workmen involved and a long period of time. You'd think that they were government projects. It took them so long to build them in that day, and most of them were government projects, by the way. This is the temple. And two things I want to say. 
We'll come back to it in the book of Chronicles. It was David's idea to build a temple, to house the ark, a place to approach God, but not a dwelling place for God. David said it's just a footstool. It's a pagan notion to believe that God lives in a house down here. It's not the teaching of the Word of God. That's the first thing. And the second thing about it is it was complicated, very complicated. I tried one time. I have a book on the tabernacle. I was going to follow through with the book on the temple. I threw up my hands in despair. May I say, it's nothing in the world but complicated that which does not illustrate or set before us the wonderful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the temple became God's dwelling place, and God can use method, I'll have to admit that. Now, the building of the temple. It was seven years in building, we're told. It was much inferior, actually, to the tabernacle, though it was rich and ornate and probably cost $5 million. It was a little jewel box, not large. It was only twice as large as the tabernacle, but around it were buildings. And there were many complications, many intricacies that were not in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle in the New Testament becomes the model that speaks of Christ. Actually, the temple, although we'll see that the Shekinah glory came upon it, it never really measured up to what the tabernacle was. And there never really was the power there that there was in the tabernacle. We feel today if we get the right method, we've got it made. But it's not in methods. It's rather today in the power of the Spirit of God as he takes the Word of God and uses it. Today we're absolutely obsessed and we're submerged, overwhelmed by methods. And a great many people feel like if they can just get the right book and get the right method and make the right approach. That's all that we need. My friend, we need the Word of God today, and it's the only solution to the problem. And someone says, well, the Bible is not popular today. Friends, we're finding that a great many people are still interested in the Word of God. And it's certainly brand new to a great many folk because There's not much teaching of the Bible in our day. Now, in chapter 7 here, we see that Solomon not only built the temple, but he built some other structures here. Notice verse 1. But Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. Now, the temple was seven years, and his palace was almost twice as long in building. It must have been a very elaborate sort of thing. And then we're told in verse 2, he built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. That was his lodge, you know, his second house, where he went on vacation. And we're told that the length thereof was a hundred cubits. That's longer than a football field, by the way. And the breadth thereof, 50 cubits. That's 75 feet. Height thereof, 30 cubits, at 60 feet, upon four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams upon the pillars. Now, all this material was furnished by Hiram 
king of Tyre, by the way. Hiram furnished the stone, and he also furnished the cedars, the cedars of Lebanon. Very few of those graceful, tall cedars are left today. All of that country's been, including Palestine, has been denuded. At one time, it was apparently heavily timbered, but not so today. Now we find that he not only built that, but he built other things. And I'll drop down to verse 8. And his house where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was of the like work. In other words, he built in a very ornate and elaborate way. Now we are told Solomon made also an house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife like unto this porch. He seems to have put her in a very favored position. And he couldn't build all of those girls a palace. If he did, he'd had a thousand of them. And that would have been a building program that would look like a housing development today, uh, a government project. But he didn't do that. Now, we are told that that's not all that he did, but we find here that a great deal of detail is given about how the stones were hewn out. They were costly stones, and he made a great court in that day. And we are told in verse 13, And King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. And this man was a worker in brass. Now, Hiram here is not the king, apparently a man named for the king, and a very skilled workman of that day. And he's the one that made all of these delicate pieces of statuary and that which was made out of iron and brass and gold, all of that. This was highly ornamented, the work that Solomon is doing. It is the evidence of an affluent period and a time of peace. It's in time of peace that the arts develop, of course, and a time when there is an affluent society and a time of prosperity and peace. And that's what this period was. Now we're told that not only did he do that, but also we have some more detail relative to the temple, the things that he did there. We're told in verse 21, "...and he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar and called the name thereof Jachin, and he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz." Jachin and Boaz. Now, these two, you'll find that there are psalms that include this. Boaz means, in it is strength. And Jachin means, God shall establish. And what you have here is strength and beauty. And that's exactly what Psalm 96.6 says. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now, strength speaks of salvation. It speaks of God able to deliver those that are his. And beauty speaks of the beauty of worship. And we're to worship him in the beauty of holiness. So that you have here these two pillars. And these are two pillars, by the way, that should be spiritually in the life of anyone that's going to worship God. If you are going to worship God, you must know something of his salvation. You must have experienced the power of God in delivering you from sin. And then you must also 
come and worship him in the beauty of holiness. Now, that doesn't mean that there should be lights and colors and that type of thing. And I do not mean to be just a perfect square. I see nothing wrong in having a beautiful sanctuary and have nice appointments. I think that it's quite proper. But those things are conducive to worship, but they're not worship, and they're no substitute for worship today. We worship him in the beauty of holiness. When you and I come into the presence of God, sense his presence, realize our inadequacy and how we come short, and then we can see him in all of his beauty and in his glory. It was the experience of Isaiah when he went into the temple, you remember. And he was given a vision of God. He's high and holy and lifted up. And this man, Isaiah, sees himself in the light of the presence of God. And he goes down on his face before God. That is the meaning of these two pillars that are there. They speak of what really is worship today, a redeemed soul who comes into the presence of a holy God. You don't rush in. And I must again say this, and I recognize that there's a difference of opinion here, and it'd be very easy for somebody to say that you're no authority in the realm of music. My friends, I tell you, the music today that doesn't lift you into the presence of God, that's not music. There's a great deal of music in the church today that turns you off. And there's no preparation at all. I have discovered in my ministry and in my conference work that oftentimes a number by the choir or a solo or some musical number before the message is given is absolutely devastating and destructive to the giving out of the Word of God. We need to recognize that worship must be made on the basis that he is high and holy and lifted up. That is the thing that we need to recognize in everything. Now, we have here some other things that I need to call attention to in the temple. Verse 23, he made a molten sea, ten cubits from the one brim to the other. It was round all about. You see, now instead of having the laver with the water in it, there is a molten sea. It was a thing of beauty, but you couldn't get clean by it. There's a great deal of services in the church today. It's beautiful, but it doesn't cleanse you and bring you into the presence of God. It doesn't refresh your soul. It doesn't bring peace and joy to the heart. These are the things that are important here. Now, there's something else that we need to note, and I drop down to verse 38. Then made he ten labors of brass. Believe me, one labor contained 40 baths. Now, here is an excess on the other side. All these labors here. Well, may I say, all it cleanses today is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. How important that is. And that's all important. I want to continue to drop right down here. We have some other articles of furniture for the temple. Verse 48, And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the table of gold, 
whereupon the showbread was, and the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left. Now, instead of one lampstand that spoke of Christ, five on each side, ten of them that are there. One is enough to speak of him, you see. Today, there is a grave danger in overemphasizing this matter of Jesus, Jesus. Now, I hope you won't think I'm critical, because if you do think I'm critical, you're right, I am. But I listened to a message that was given on radio that party mentioned the name of Jesus. When it was halfway through the message, over 50 times that he mentioned the name of Jesus. May I say to you, just keep mentioning his name. Just keep multiplying golden lampstands. That's not the thing. May I say to you, all we need to recognize today that you don't become familiar with him at all. I am hearing so much of this over-familiarity with Jesus. I heard a man say the other day that he was going to come into the presence of Jesus and sit down and talk with him. Well, now, maybe he will. I don't know. But the scene that I have given to me of the glorified Christ and of a man who was very familiar with him when he was here on earth, he'd rebuke him and make suggestions to him. It was John. John wanted to bring down fire from heaven, suggested the Lord destroy this. He was always making suggestions to the Lord. Didn't pay attention to him, however, but he'd make them. And he reclined on his bosom in the upper room. He was very familiar with him in the days of his flesh. But John says, when I saw him on the Isle of Patmos, the glorified Christ, I fell at his feet as dead. I think that's where you're going to be. This idea today, just because we keep multiplying lampstands, and we become overly familiar with him, and just keep pronouncing his name, friends, let's not get familiar with him. How wonderful he is. And he's one we worship, we adore him today. And he is the one that we fall down before. That's important to see. Now we have other things that are said here. We have in verse 51, So was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels, did he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. See, David is the one that had gathered all of these things. And so the articles of furniture that David had protected are now brought in. Now, in chapter 8, we have the dedication, and we see the glory of the Lord filling the temple after the ark was brought from the tabernacle and installed inside the Holy of Holies. Now, let me begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 8 of 1 Kings. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto King Solomon in Jerusalem. Now we have here the dedication. Will you note here verse 5, And King Solomon, all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered from multitude. Now, you must recall that the number of animals that were offered here, the explanation of how it can be done is easy. They had two altars to begin with, 
And then for this occasion, they had many temporary altars that were there. And they thought by the continual sacrifice. But that, my friend, wasn't the impressive thing. He has appeared once in the end of the age to offer himself once for the sins of the world. Didn't need all of this, but Solomon went in for that type of thing. Now we are told that when the ark was brought in, that the glory filled the house. Verse 10, it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. In other words, they brought in the ark and they took the staves out of it because it's not to be moved anymore. And the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord. It filled the house of the Lord. Now, we have this dedication. Verse 12, Then spoke Solomon, The Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee a house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. But now notice, somebody says, Well, he did expect God to dwell in it. No, he didn't. Let's keep reading down. Verse 17, It was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David, My father, whereas it was in thine heart to build a house unto my name, thou didst well that it was in thine heart. That is, God says, I'll give David credit for it. I think we ought to call it David's temple. It's not Solomon's temple. The only temple he had is on the side of his head. This is not his temple. It was David's temple. It was David's idea. Now, verse 20, "...and the Lord hath performed his word that he spoke, and I am risen up in the room of David my father, set on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel." Now, notice this tremendous dedication prayer here of Solomon. I'm not going to read all of it. I want to drop down just to lift out verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I builded. Well, Solomon didn't understand God was going to dwell in that house. That's pagan, friends, to think God can dwell in a house. And we today have the pagan notion of calling the church God's house, not God's house. I tell you, God today indwells believers not housing. And when believers are meeting in a church, God is there in the person of the Holy Spirit. But when they all go out and the lights are turned out, God's no more in that building than he's in any bar room in the place. Why, my friends, he doesn't dwell in a house. Now notice verse 29, "...that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there." This is the place that you approach him. And this is the way we approach him today. What you shall ask in my name. My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. Now, they were told that if they prayed toward that place, God would hear and God would answer their prayer. This is a very wonderful thing. Certainly, the prayer of Solomon reveals that no primitive notion of God. The temple now becomes the center of worship. 
and the world was to come to the temple to worship, Israel in captivity was to turn toward the temple and pray. God says that if you'll turn toward this, and that he would hear and forgive. That's verse 30. Now, let me drop down here to verse 41. Moreover, concerning a stranger that's not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, and they shall hear of thy great name, and of thy strong hand, and of thy stretched out arm. Then he shall come and pray toward this house. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee, as do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built it is called by thy name. Now, this is the place of worship. And Israel's witness to the world is different than ours. We are told to go to all the world. God does not meet man in any particular place. He'll meet him in any place today. But in that day, it was, Come, let us go to the house of the Lord. And the stranger would come from afar, as the Queen of Sheba, we shall see. She came. And this coming, my friend, reveals the fact that the way God was approached was by coming to Jerusalem. This was the way to God. All of that speaks of Christ and the cross of Christ, and that's the way to God today. He made it very clear, no man cometh to the Father but by me. It's not through a temple today. It's not through a ritual. It's not through a service, but it's through Jesus Christ today that we come to God. Now, in verse 46, here is something that is quite interesting. It looks forward to the day when these people would sin against God, be sent into captivity. And what were they to do then with a temple that was destroyed? Verse 46, If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not. That, my friend, is God's estimate of you and me. There's no man that sinneth not. Don't tell me now that you don't sin. God says you do. And thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they were carried captives, and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. This is what Daniel did. You'll recall yonder in Babylon opened his window toward Jerusalem, prayed toward that temple, and confessed the sins of the nation, of the people, and of himself personally. This is the thing God says they were to do. And so return unto thee with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray unto thee toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I built for thy name, then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven, thy dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions which they've transgressed. And so that's exactly what Daniel did. 
and God did hear and answer prayer. Now, we find in verse 54 something that's quite interesting. There's always been the question, what is the posture of prayer? Should you stand? Should you kneel? Should you get down on all fours or prostrate before the Lord on the ground? Which way should you get? Well, notice what he says. Verse 54, And was so that when Solomon made an end of praying, all his prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Now, if you want a posture in prayer, here it is. I don't think that that's essential myself. I think you can pray in most any posture. I think it was Victor Hugo said that the soul is on its knees many times regardless of the posture of the body, so that it's not the posture of the body, but the posture of the heart that is important. But here it is, if you're interested in a posture. Here's where it is mentioned. Now we're told he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel. Then there was this tremendous sacrifice of animals that was made here. Verse 63, And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord, two and twenty thousand oxen, a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day did the king hallow the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, meal offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the brazen altar that was before the Lord was too little to receive the burnt offering and meal offering and fat of the peace offering. And at that time Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great congregation from the entering in of Hamath under the river of Egypt. Now, obviously, what took place was this. All of these that were offered, there was not room enough. There are those who say, how could he have done all of this? Well, the record says there wasn't room there to do it. And therefore, they put up temporary altars at this time in dedication. Now, I think the altars reached all the way down to the river of Egypt and all the way up to Hamath in the north. So that was a time of great celebration and a picnicking, if you please, because on these other altars, why the offering was taken and it was divided among the people. It was a time of great celebration. We'd call it a picnic today, I guess, taking away the religious aspect of it. Now, in chapter 9, we come here to a section where God appears now to Solomon the second time, and he does it to encourage his heart. And we notice something very interesting here. I begin reading now verse 1 of chapter 9 of 1 Kings. came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Now, God is saying to him here, Solomon, here's where I'll meet with you, here at the temple. This is the place for you to come 
for the people to come. This is the place for the world to come. This was the meeting place in that day, just as the Lord Jesus today is the approach to God. In that day, the temple, and that temple speaks of him, of course. Now, he mentions again something else. Verse 4, And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked. Now, that's a human standard, and it's not a high standard. Well, it is a high standard in the sense David had a tremendous capacity for God and a love for God, and he failed, he fumbled and faltered, and he fell. But he got up. And he came to God in confession, and he wanted a fellowship with God. And therefore, if you'll walk before me as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart, that's so important today. There's so much subterfuge in worship. And friends, there's a great deal of hypocrisy today in the church. I spoke at a banquet some time ago where there was over a thousand people present, one of the officials. One of the politicians of that area was present. Oh, he got up. You'd think he was the most pious fellow in the crowd. And you know, he left before the message. You know why? He didn't want to hear it. He's not interested in God's Word. There's so much of that today. You tell the Lord the facts, friends, and you better tell him the facts, because he already knows all about you anyway. David walked before God in integrity of heart. Sure, he failed, but he's the one that confessed it, and he's the one that asked for cleansing. His faith failed for a moment, but beneath that faith that failed, there was a faith that never failed. And he walked before God in integrity of heart and in uprightness. David was honest in his integrity to God. May I say this, and I say it kindly, and I say it after an experience of about 40 years in the ministry, friends. I think there's more dishonesty in church service today. And I mean by on Sunday morning, there's more dishonesty and hypocrisy that's revealed there. Here comes a man out of the business world. And I want to tell you he's been careless in his life. And he comes out of a home where he's not setting an example. He walks into church with a Bible under his arm and he talks about God and the will of God and uses all sorts of pious expressions. Who is he tempting to fool? God? Of course you're not fooling him. Why not just tell him as David did? Just tell him how the cow ate the cabbage. Tell him the facts about yourself. He walked before God in uprightness to do according all that I've commanded thee, and will keep my statutes, my judgment. I says here, when David failed, he made confession. Then I'll establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man from the throne of Israel. There never has. There's one today that nail-pierced hands hold the sceptre of this universe today. Verse 6, But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye are your children and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And that's what they are today, if you please. That has come to pass literally. Now, he says, furthermore, and at this house... 
which is high, every one that passeth by it shall be astonished, shall hiss. They shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? You go look at that spot today. The temple has been raised in the mosque of Omar is there. Verse 9, And they shall answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God. Why is that land as it is today? Why is the mosque of Omar there? Because they forsook God, friends. That's the answer. Who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them, and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. Then we're told here that Solomon had a little difficulty with Hiram. I don't think Solomon and Hiram hit it off as David and Hiram had. Now, notice what we're told here in verse 11. Now, Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees and with gold, according to all his desire, that then King Solomon gave Hiram twenty cities in the land of Galilee. Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they pleased him not. He felt like it. He hadn't been given full payment, you see. Actually, there was a misunderstanding, and this is a thing that caused a breach between these two men. Verse 13, he said, What cities are these which thou hast given me, my brother? And he called the land Cable unto this day. And Hiram sent to the king six score talents of gold. And this is the reason of the levy which King Solomon raised were to build a house. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city and given it for a present unto his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer and Beth Horn the nether. And we are told here that there is this extension of the kingdom. We are told that Solomon began now to levy a tribute in order to pay for the temple. And we are told here, verse 26, King Solomon made a navy of ships, and Hiram sent in the navy his servants, shipmen that had knowledge of the sea with the servants of Solomon. They came to Ophir and fetched from thence gold, 420 talents, and brought it to King Solomon. Now, Solomon just about cornered the gold market of that day. Now, we have in chapter 10... One of the great illustrations of the influence of Solomon of that day. And we have here the visit of the Queen of Sheba. And it revealed that Solomon succeeded in witnessing for God in the world of that day. And Solomon's fame had spread throughout the world, as we're going to see in this chapter here. Now, I want you to notice this, because very candidly, this is one of the very important chapters that we have in the Scripture, and it reveals that this man Solomon did a marvelous job of witnessing for God. And it's all seen in this one lone incident of the Queen of Sheba. And it's given to us to show the effect of the reign of Solomon as God's representative upon the nations of the world. Now, she came because of what she had heard. And she didn't believe half what she'd heard, and then found out that a half hadn't been told to her at all. Now, this is a tremendous illustration, and I think that we should note that in this illustration that we have just one isolated 
incident, and there are many others that could have been given. Now, let me read, beginning at verse 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Now, that's what she heard about. Here is a temple built that you can approach God. And she wanted to know about that. And she came to prove him with hard questions. And she'd heard of the wisdom of the man. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train and camels and bare spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. Solomon told her all her questions. There was not any hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Now that word, and his ascent by which he went up to the house of the Lord, that should be translated burnt offering. He approached God by a burnt offering. Now, this is the offering that speaks more fully of Christ and his substitutionary death than all others. The queen of Sheba and the world came to know about Christ through the burnt offering. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission. And that's brought now to her as a testimony. And the testimony of the queen of Sheba reveals that she did come to know the living and the true God there. Now she's impressed by the wisdom of Solomon and his building program. All of the palace and the other buildings and the temple and the bounty and the luxury, the temporal prosperity. Now, God's people, for a brief moment, therefore, in time, they were faithful and true witnesses of God. And one half hadn't been told, and I don't think a half of it's been told today concerning it. And she said to the king, verse 6, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and thy wisdom. Howbeit I believe not the word. She didn't believe it, you see, until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Now, this is a great testimony, you see, that she gives. Blessed is the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. Now, this is her testimony. And I think this reveals she came to know the living and true God. And she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold. She brought a great amount of wealth and gave to Solomon. We're told also in verse 11, Hiram was king of Tyre, of the Phoenicians. They were seagoing people. And we read the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almond trees and precious stones. And told here that he continued his building program. He made pillars for the house of the Lord, for the king's house, harps also, psalters for singers. Great development, you see, in the kingdom. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all of her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her 
of its royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now, she's an isolated incident of one who came to know God. Now, there were many others, just as you have in the book of Acts. Three outstanding conversions. You have that of the Ethiopian eunuch, of Saul of Tarsus, and Cornelius. But we know that literally thousands came to know Christ at that time. Thousands came to know God through the temple in Jerusalem at this time and the witness of these people. Now we are told something of the gold that came to Solomon. It means nothing to me to say here that there were 603 score and six talents of gold came to him every year. He just cornered the gold market. There's a cave up in Kentucky where we used to keep gold, but apparently we're losing it all. Well, Solomon had it all in his day, too. And we're told here in verse 17, he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Just think of that, the luxury of his court and all that. Now, we are told, though, something here that begins to reveal, I think, something of the affluence and the fact that the plenty and prosperity of the day. We're told in verse 22, For the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish, with the navy of Hiram. Once in three years came the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes, and peacocks. Now, this may not look to you to be a very serious thing, but the apes that were brought were brought for entertainment. That was for the zoo. (laughs) The peacocks were bought for their beauty. And the gold and silver and ivory was for magnificent decoration. And this is a frivolous and tragic note here, which is symptomatic. It'll be revealed more later on. Here is a man called to give a witness to the world. The world was coming to his door. And what does he do? He spends his energy, his time, with apes and peacocks and gold and silver to just satisfy a whim of his heart. My friend, what are you busy doing today? Getting out the Word of God, or are you in the business of apes, gathering a bunch of apes? That's for entertainment. You go for that today, pay more for that than you do for the things of God. How about peacocks? That's for beauty. More spent today on beauty preparations than given to the Lord's work. Silver and gold. Are you so busy making money that you don't have time to give some time to the Lord? Oh, my friend, today we're called to witness also. God have mercy on us for going the business of apes and peacocks. How frivolous. We're told now in verse 23, So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom, and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Which means that these nations came to Jerusalem at this particular time. And there was a real witness to the world by Solomon at this time. And a witness for God. And verse 25, And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver, vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses, mules, a rate year by year. This enabled Solomon, frankly, to build up a kingdom that was noted for its riches. And it, of course, made them the subject of the spoil of other nations later on 
when the nation was divided and weakened. And we are told that Solomon, verse 26, gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand four hundred chariots, twelve thousand horsemen. May I say that Solomon, as he gathered horses and horsemen and expanded in this department, which God forbade him to do, he would make these modern racetracks with all of their evidences of wealth and of money, make them look like a tenant farmer's barn in Georgia, the way that he was able to expand. And we're told in verse 28, "...and Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price, and a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver." And we find that Solomon is really building up tremendous wealth in the kingdom, and he actually had cornered the gold market of the world at that time, as well as silver and precious stones. Now we read in chapter 11, verse 1, "...but King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites." Now, this man, Solomon is actually patterning after his father David in this connection. It's too bad he didn't pattern after him in other connections, but he did in this. And we find that this man, he'd been brought up in the king's palace. He was sort of an effeminate-type individual. He was not accustomed to that which is rough and rugged, as David his father was. And now this fellow begins to gather in women, just as somebody else might have a hobby of gathering antique automobiles or something else. Solomon's gathering women from all nationalities. Now, these turned the head of Solomon and caused him to go into idolatry and to permit idolatry in the land. And he's absolutely breaking over God's prescribed law at this particular point. And we're told here that, verse 2, and I should read it, "...of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love." Now, you can well understand that I think this is the one place in the Scripture, that you could change love to sex. That was the motive of Solomon. Solomon had been raised in the women's palace. He had never known anything rough outside or manly. And so he spent his time here gathering women. He was accustomed to be in their company. He was a dandy. He would correspond to a great many we have in our day. Now, God is going to have to deal with him in this connection. Now, don't tell me the Lord approved of this man. He didn't. Verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon. Now, let's be fair with the Word of God. There are those that say, Oh, look, God permitted Solomon to have a thousand wives. He did not. The Lord was angry with Solomon. The record says he had that many because that was accurate. That's history. But the attitude of God toward it is revealed here. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel 
which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, now listen to this, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding, in thy days I'll not do it, for David thy father's sake. But I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit, I'll not rend it away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. Now, that one tribe, I would say, is Benjamin, because he was a member of the tribe of Judah, and that tribe naturally would be with him. So, there were two tribes that were in the division that went with the family of David, and the other ten in the north went with Jeroboam. Now, we are introduced to Jeroboam, and we find out that was at this time that toward the end of his reign, that God begins to stir up trouble for this man. Because God has said, there's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked, and this man has enjoyed peace. And so we read in verse 14, the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was the king's seed in Edom. Now we find out that there is warfare. Now in verse 26, we're introduced to Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built Milo and repaired the breaches of the city of David, his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man, that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. In other words, Solomon saw that this young man was outstanding, although he was a son of a servant. He lifted him up and elevated him to a high position. And it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him in the way, and he had clad himself with a new garment, and they too were alone in the field. Now, let me just say what took place. Ahijah, the prophet, took that new garment, tore it in twelve pieces, and gave ten of them to this boy Jeroboam, and said, God is going to give you ten tribes. Because of the sin of Solomon, why, the kingdom will be divided. But because of David, why, two of the tribes will stay with the family of David. Now, notice what we have here, verse 41. We come now to the end of the reign of Solomon. By the way, when Solomon discovered what this boy Jeroboam was doing, why, he sought to get him, apprehend him, and to kill him. And we're told, And Jeroboam arose, fled to Egypt, unto Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now, we read in the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? 
And we'll see that again when we come to First and Second Chronicles. Now, verse 42. And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And we are told Solomon slept with his fathers. He was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, Solomon is a very colorful ruler in the sense that he accumulated so much of this world's goods. Everything denoted wealth. Everything denoted affluence. Everything denoted that there was prosperity in the kingdom. And our Lord refers to the glory that was Solomon's. And there was that earthly glory in his kingdom.